Welcome to episode 52 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Paul, Suzanne, Tony, and Ruth. They used the donation button on our website. Thank you, Paul, Suzanne, Tony, and Ruth, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with a seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Today we're going to hear our own stories. What was it like? What brought us to a program of recovery? What is our life like now? Before we begin, we would like to state that though we and our guests may be in a 12-step program, we represent ourselves rather than the program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer, and I will be your host today. Other voices will take part in the program, but they are not here in the studio with me right now. Before I start, I'd like to thank those of you who sent in your stories, and particularly the listener who recorded her story, and then due to something going wrong, the two-thirds of it was damaged and not playable. The first segment of today's episode of The Recovery Show will be your stories and our stories. Following a musical break, then I will talk about my life in recovery. We will follow that with your email contributions and some brief news about the podcast before closing with another musical break. And in fact, putting a little piece of music in between each story. I do have a reading. This is from the book How Elanon Works. It's from chapter 7 in the section entitled Opening Up. Most of us find it important to begin to talk about the things that trouble us. In Elanon, it is often said that we are only as sick as our secrets. A key to breaking the stranglehold that alcoholism has on our lives is to begin to open up and let those secrets out. Part of the isolation of this disease is the belief that we are unique, that no one has done or said or felt the terrible things that we have done, said, and felt, and that no one could possibly understand. Therefore, we hide the truth at all costs. Until we challenge this sense of uniqueness by sharing our thoughts with other people who have known the shame and isolation of alcoholism, we may never find out that it is not real. As the suggested closing for our meetings reminds us, whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. We are not alone, and we need to unlearn the thinking that tells us that no one understands. This simply isn't true. Not everyone has been where we have been or felt what we have felt, but turning to those in Al-Anon who have also suffered the effects of alcoholism is different from turning to uninformed friends and neighbors. Although our stories may differ, we who live or have lived with alcoholism have a rare understanding of one another. Reaching out to other members is essential because a vital part of recovering from alcoholism's effect is breaking our isolation. And so today we have three stories for you, and I hope that you may find pieces of identification with all three of them and understand that you are not alone. As I said, my name is Spencer. I'd like to start by reading Julia's story. Hello, everybody. I'm Julia. I'm 26 and a grateful member of Al-Anon. I owe a lot to this program, especially my growing sense of self and connection with others. My father drank alcoholically until I was 13, when he quit drinking for Lent, and my two sisters, my mother and I, never really talked about it except to complain about the drinking. He never got any program, and I honestly don't remember much of his drinking days because those memories got overshadowed by my tumultuous early adulthood. 
I started dating a man when I was 18, and we've been together now eight years. Because I was in college, I didn't think much of his drinking, but I very quickly became his only financial support, and while I went to school full-time and worked part-time, he lived the rock and roll lifestyle day and night. I knew I was in deep, but I couldn't find a way up. I felt I could not tell anyone how my life really was because I was terrified of being judged or criticized. My money was depleted, and amidst the four years of my college, I also had two cars stolen and my apartment burned down. But I refused to admit that anything was too big for me to handle. I was just fine. Things got worse for both of us when I graduated and no longer had the distraction of school to keep me from slipping into deeper depression and from seeing the truth of my choices and contributions to my problems and his. Before I came into the program a year ago, I was under the illusion that I was alone, completely different, and entirely disconnected from any real relationships or reality. I wore my ideals as a mask, because if I could convey that I was an ultra-liberal, ultra-feminist, and ultra-understanding person who lived for others' rights and acted in no way stereotypically feminine or masculine, then I would become that, and everyone would love me. I could not bring myself to set any boundary with my alcoholic boyfriend. I thought I needed to mediate everything, make everyone happy, and avoid conflict at any cost. I proclaimed self-awareness and strong womanhood while feeling completely unable to express it for myself or even see that I was living like a doormat and enabler. When my grandmother was murdered in July last year, I fell apart, this tragedy being the trigger that ignited the tightly packed away explosives in my heart. I finally saw a counselor and for the first time out loud to anyone admitted that I had been living with active alcoholism for seven years. She suggested that I go to Al-Anon. Oh, but he won't go, I said. She explained that these meetings were for me and only me. I didn't understand that that could even be possible because I had isolated myself enough to where I couldn't fathom anyone being in a similar situation or making the choices I made. And so right off the bat of my first meeting, I had a 10-ton weight lifted from me. I immediately knew I could trust enough to actually talk about what mattered, and no one was going to tell me I was an idiot or that I needed to leave my relationship or even look at me like an alien, which is how I expected anyone would if I said something truthful. It's this foundation of common ground and non-judgment that made me fall in love with my recovery so quickly. I kept my first meeting a secret from my boyfriend until the next week when I mustered up the most courage I'd had in seven years to tell him the news, and the angry reaction I feared was what I got. Since then, I have learned that one of my main character issues is that I'm a people pleaser. I have spent a lot of my recovery so far trying to let go of the need to make others happy through self-sacrifice. Even though it doesn't seem that being a doormat is controlling on the surface, it now appears that way for me, because I'm trying to manipulate the atmosphere around me instead of letting conflict arise when it should, or disappointing someone when I make a choice. Making choices on what kind of pasta sauce to buy was hard enough without calling my boyfriend, and so you can guess that making boundaries was effing terrifying. I have found that, like many of us do, I feel guilty putting boundaries in place, and even guiltier implementing them. I still pay for alcohol and all the bills, even though it's enabling behavior, and I don't often put into words what I'm really thinking when I talk to people. I know that my recovery has a long, long way to go, but I think I can appreciate the vast difference in my attitudes and condition since last year. I was able to gather up the courage to ask someone to be my sponsor in December of 2012, and she has been guiding me through the steps, so I'm wading into the fourth one with both willingness and fear. With the fellowship, the ability to let out my thoughts amongst trusted peers, I can really see that I'm getting healthier. 
I'm thankful every day for a program that reminds me that I'm not in control and more that I don't need to be. And thank you, Julia, for that really honest, um, open sharing. And, uh, you know, I know I can relate to a lot of the feelings you expressed in there and, um, and man, you've been through a lot. Uh, and I'm really glad that you found, um, a program of recovery. And, uh, so for our first, uh, musical break, when I read Julia's story, I thought she was really on the highway to hell, but she has found an exit ramp in the, uh, in the al program. So the appropriate song here, of course, is Highway to Hell by ACDC. Emily's story. This was read by Maria. My story. This story is about me. It is about my journey. It is not a story about the alcoholics in my life and how I tried to save them and how I tried to save myself from them. When I get too deep into those stories, I start taking other people's inventory and take the focus off of myself, the only person I can change. I qualify for this program. I relate to stories I have heard from children, spouses, parents, siblings, grandparents, and friends of alcoholics, and I share pieces of their stories in one way or another. But this story is about me. I have been listening to a lot of AA speaker tapes and studying about the disease of alcoholism because I relate to alcoholics so much. I share the same spiritual malady that is talked about in the big book of AA. I just lack the allergy. My understanding of the allergy to alcohol is that the element of craving exists. When someone like me starts to feel a buzz, her usual reaction to the buzz is, hey, I'm starting to feel a buzz. I better eat something or drink water or at least stop drinking so that I don't get too drunk. When the person with this allergy starts to feel the buzz, he, she thinks to herself, I have to have more. The reaction of alcohol incites the craving, and that is the allergy at work. I have heard alcoholics say that their primary objective is to guard against that first drink. This is hard because the alcohol provides a spiritual comfort that the alcoholic does not have access to otherwise. Practicing the program of AA often gives the alcoholic access to the spiritual comfort she desires, but introducing her to a higher power who is available, accessible, and loving, and takes her out of herself and puts her focus on being of service to others. I relate so strongly to this understanding of alcoholism, and I have found my spiritual principles in the program of Al-Anon. Why? What am I addicted to? I am addicted to a fantasy. I am addicted to the idea that everything is going to work out perfectly, with the definition of, be of perfectly being in my will. Alcoholics often need alcohol to survive if they do not have the tools of the program. Without a spiritual solution, and without drinking, they tend to fall into despair and are miserable and make everyone around them miserable too. 
This is a dry drunk situation where the alcoholic does not drink, but also does not have a spiritual solution. The alcoholic is white-knuckling sobriety. As an outside observer of this phenomenon, it appears to me that they are better off in the bottle than white-knuckling sobriety. Likewise, I needed my fantasy. There are times I still need my fantasy. I lived my life in a fantasy for the first 25 years of my life. Very difficult things happened to me and around me, but I had an unshakable optimism. I believed in a loving God. I believed that the people in my life had my best interest at heart. I believed that if push came to shove, they would rise to the occasion and be there for me. I told myself that my feelings were not important, and I covered them with gratitude and optimism. I assumed that if things got really bad for me and my feelings became important, that the people around me who seemed so self-consumed would suddenly stop what they were doing and save me. I knew there was so much suffering in this world and felt that it would be selfish to claim that I, too, was suffering. So no matter what happened, I smiled and went on. That made me a very good codependent. A mostly perfect daughter. A mostly perfect girlfriend slash wife. A mostly perfect friend. A mostly perfect student and employee. I had all this optimism and fantasy to hold on to, but I was depressed inside. I felt worthless. I mostly did not feel valued or heard. It is difficult to explain the feeling, but I had this deep-seated feeling that if I died, nobody would care or notice. Intellectually, I knew this wasn't true, but I felt that way deep down. I used to think about my funeral and wonder who would show up, and whether anyone would have actually known me as I really was. My fantasy was covering a deep depression and my feeling of self-nothingness. I felt like nobody even saw me. I was always encouraged and told I was so wonderful. I was very intelligent, good at almost anything I tried, and pretty attractive. People always assumed I was okay and didn't need any help, so I played into that and became so perfectionistic and so full of shame any time I did not know the answer to something. I came across as a know-it-all because I was so afraid to admit I did not know something, lest I crack this illusion. I didn't want anyone to see that I was struggling. I was comfortable with my fantasy and wanted everyone to buy into it, too. What kept me alive? I held on to the fantasy that one day everything would work out, that all these people in my life would actually see me someday for who I really was, that I would have the perfect job, the perfect kids, the perfect house, the perfect husband, and be able to influence people and draw people into a relationship with a God of my understanding, who was always a happy, all-inclusive, non-judgy God. I really believed this was my future, so I endured my present for many years holding on to that fantasy. I don't think that there is necessarily anything wrong with that, although I do think it sometimes made me come across as annoyingly bubbly and kept me from seeing reality and having empathy for suffering people. It was how I survived until it stopped serving me. I had these underlying feelings of worthlessness and despair right under the surface of my bubbly exterior. Then I got pregnant with my first child. I don't know how to describe my joy when I found out I was pregnant. I remember having the thoughts, my life is about to start, and now I have a reason to live, and everything in my, lef my life up until now has prepared me for this moment. I always knew I wanted to be a mother and made choices in my life with this in mind, picked a career I thought would be family-friendly, lived near my parents so that my future kids could grow up with family. Oh man, I was so excited, so, so happy. I told everyone I knew, and even people I didn't know, that I was pregnant, right away. I could not contain my overwhelming joy. I started picturing the future like never before. I also thought that all the people in my life who seemed so self-absorbed would suddenly change, because what's a bigger deal than having a baby? Nothing, I tell you. 
So I went in for my 10-week visit at the OB. I had known I was pregnant now for seven weeks and had been completely consumed with the excitement. She did an ultrasound to see the baby and took some measurements. The baby was the size of six-week gestation. The doctor wanted to run more tests to be sure, but I knew. I knew that I couldn't be six weeks along because I wouldn't have had a positive pregnancy test seven weeks before. I knew. My baby, my dream, my fantasy were all gone. My life would never be the same again. This was a Wednesday. The death of my unborn baby was confirmed on Friday, and they could not schedule the necessary surgery until the following Monday. Devastated doesn't seem a strong enough word, but I will use it anyway. I was devastated. I loved that baby, and I still do. I'm a mother who lost her child. I think about that baby and love her every day of my life. I feel her loss greatly every day. I was absolutely alone. I had built up this air of being so self-sufficient, strong, and confident my whole life, and nobody saw my pain. That weekend, I stayed home by myself while my husband went to a bachelor party and got epically wasted against my pleading to stay with me. I begged, pleaded, cried, but nothing worked. I was scared of medical complications, but I also needed support. I needed someone else to walk through this with me and to see me. I did not have that. I asked my mother to come stay with me. She did not understand and lovingly said that if I needed her to call and she would drive the five minutes to my house, but she didn't understand what I really needed. I needed someone with me not to have to ask again. I probably didn't even know what I needed in that moment and most likely did not communicate it. I had no friends come help me. I am sure I did not ask. Nobody came riding in on a horse to save me in my hour of need. My fantasy was shattered, absolutely. I survived the weekend with no medical complications, but with emotional scars that are still with me today. Push had come to shove, and nobody was there. In Al-Anon, I have to let go of my will. I have to understand that sometimes horrible things happen, and there is no explanation. I have to let go of expecting others to fulfill the fantasy in my life, and I have to trust God and know he will never leave me or forsake me. I also have to reach out for help. I have to take the help that is offered me, and I have to help others when they cannot help themselves. Life has been both amazing and horrible since my first baby died. My first son was born in September 2008, and my next was born in May 2010. I was meant to be a mother. I am a great mother, and I love those boys with everything in me. Motherhood is hard, but wonderful. Although that aspect of my life was beyond all my expectations on the awesome scale, my life was unmanageable because of my spiritual condition. The fantasy that kept me alive so long was shattered, and I was still trying to hold on to it, white-knuckling it, so full of fear, anxiety, shame, and insanity. My perfect life, that still looked pretty darn perfect from the outside, was far from perfect. My fantasy marriage was a nightmare, and my life was out of control. I was like an alcoholic who has given up alcohol but has no spiritual solution. I was a dried drunk from my addiction to my fantasy. I came to Al-Anon in November 2011 and began a series of spiritual awakenings that began to show me my life in its true perspective. I know that I have lived in this denial system my whole life where I masked all my hurts and all my pain behind optimism and gratitude. When I am living in my addiction, I will push all negative feelings aside and focus on the fantasy. I will constantly hold myself and my loved ones up against it and fight kicking and screaming when I feel it slipping away. I catastrophize situations that aren't going my way, so full of fear that the world is about to crumble down unless I stop it. 
When things appear good to me, consistent with my fantasy, I am on a high. My life, when not centered in spiritual practice, is a constant chaotic mess of high highs and low lows. When I am spiritually centered, I am not focused on my expectation and how the current world stacks against those expectations. Instead, I am calm and centered and asking God what His will for my life is. Or even better for me, I am just calmly living in the moment, enjoying the life I have been given. It is not perfect. It's certainly not a fantasy, but it is mine and it is full of blessings. Al-Anon teaches me that I need to learn to acknowledge all the events in my life that got me to where I am. Awareness, acceptance, action. I need to peel back the optimism and find the realism and love for myself for who I really am today, not for some promise in the future that may or may not come true. I am working on that one day at a time with God and trusted friends. I can only get a daily, sometimes hourly reprieve from my addiction to fantasy. My life is unmanageable without God to restore me to sanity, which he does when I let go of my will and let him. Emily, I really liked your description of your obsession with the fantasy of control, your obsession, your craving um, for that fantasy, and relating that to uh, addictive behavior of an alcoholic, because I think that's often true for me, and I can only speak for myself, but that that sometimes I want to go to that place where uh, I'm the person who's saving the situation. I'm the person who is making everything better. Uh, this is a way that, that I learned that I was supposed to be. I learned that, um, you know, as a child growing up. And I really want to be able to be that person. And and the program really has taught me that, you know, I can't be that person. Uh, really, nobody can be that person. And to try to, um, you know, direct those helping urges into into healthy ways of supporting other people rather than uh, sort of controlling, taking over, uh, fixing uh, way of, of, of helping. And I put that in, in air quotes that I used to do. The other day, um, I was listening to the podcast All Songs Considered, which I really like. I enjoy it. I don't always enjoy all the music they play. But I always enjoy finding out about new music and, uh, you know, listening to some old favorites. And one of the things they played that, that day, the topic of that particular podcast was the song about my family or something. I forget exactly the title. Uh, they asked people to call or write in and, and tell what song described their family. And one person's song was No Surprises by Radiohead. And as I was listening to the chorus, which is no alarms and no surprises, I really couldn't help but think of Emily's story, which is full of alarms and surprises. And, you know, what I found with the program is I can still have surprises in my life, but they don't have to be alarms. That, you know, Eleanor has given me tools to take a pause, to do the three A's, awareness, acceptance, and action, that can then lead to appropriate response rather than an alarming reaction. Let's listen. Ah, 
this section of the podcast with my story as I understand it today. Uh, I've, uh, every time I tell the story, it you know comes a little differently. I used to say that, that my Al-Anon story started on a day in April 2002 when I was sitting in a lecture room at a treatment center uh, listening to one of the counselors talk about codependency and about the effect that it has on uh, the loved ones, the family, the friends of, of the addict or alcoholic. And I had heard probably most of what that person was saying before at other treatment centers and other venues. But that day it sounded different to me. I heard it differently. And, and when they said that I didn't cause it, that I can't cure it, and that I can't control it, I heard that with a, a huge feeling of relief. It really almost literally felt weight coming off of my body as I realized that the, the struggle that I had been waging to, uh, to try to get my loved one to stop drinking was, was not mine. It was a battle I could not win. I had an illusion of being able to fix things. And with the loss of that illusion um, came this amazing feeling of lightness and realization that, wow, I was out of control that my life was unmanageable, and that I needed help. And, and I really think that it was in that moment that, that I took the first step in my heart. Uh, I, you know, of course, I took it back in my head consciously uh, many times since then. But that was the day when I really realized and admitted and accepted my powerlessness. I went to my first al meeting that night. And, you know, it's funny. I was just thinking about this. I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about this before, despite having been in... These treatment centers been in the, the, the lectures, whatever, with the other family members of other alcoholics and addicts. I always felt that my situation was unique, that nobody would understand. And, boy, you hear an echo of Julia's story there, I think. And I was isolated. I didn't want to talk about it to anybody. I was ashamed. And I went to my first meeting. And at the end of that meeting, where I really don't remember what anybody said, I, I did. I sat by the door so I could escape quickly if I felt I needed to. Um, I cried. I listened, and at the end of that meeting, I knew that I was no longer alone. I knew that there was 
a room full of people who really got it, who understood what was happening in my life, who understood the feelings that I was having, who understood the, the fear, the desperation, the frustration, the anger, the rage, the panic, um, the sadness, uh, the desolation that, that was part of living with, with active alcoholism. And I felt a little better. I didn't know why, but I felt better. I mean, part of it was was not not feeling alone anymore. So I kept going back. And, you know, I started hearing people talking about their lives. And, and some of their lives were really in in fundamental ways no different from mine. But they experienced it differently. You know, they had sometimes happiness. They had uh, some sort of peace that I didn't have. And I wondered, well, how do I get that? And of course, the answer was, well, do what we did, do what, do what we say. And that included the 12 steps. And, you know, I had seen those 12 steps. I had seen those 12 steps on the walls at treatment centers. I didn't want to have anything to do with those 12 steps. They had nothing to do with my problem, I thought. I didn't, you know, I wasn't the one with the problem. You know, she was the problem. She needed to, she needed those 12 steps, but I didn't need them. And, and, by coming to meetings, by listening, by reading the literature, I came to see that, that maybe this was a way that I could feel better, that I could get my life back under control. And of course, I hoped that in the process, um, she would find sobriety. But I, I really understood pretty early that whatever I did in the program, it was it was not going to get her sober. And I started practicing let go I couldn't really let God, as I've said before, I had no good concept of God at that point, no concept of a higher power, but I could let go. Because if I was trying to hang on to something that I couldn't hang on to, if I was trying to move something that I couldn't move, letting go was a really, you know, sort of reasonable and practical thing to do. Because whatever I was doing wasn't really having any effect. So I heard people say and work the steps, get a sponsor. So I did that. I got a sponsor. I joined a small group that was working the steps. We spent a couple of years going through the book Paths, Pathways to Recovery, answering those questions that are on each step in, in that book. There's another Al-Anon Conference Approved Literature book that's a, sort of a workbook for recovery. And meeting once a week to talk about our answers. And as I did that, um, you know, I started to get some clarity. I started to find myself again. I had lost myself in in my loved one's drinking because my life really depended on, on hers. And if she had a good day, I had a good day. And if she had a bad day, I had a bad day. I didn't know what I wanted except that I wanted her to stop drinking. You know, that was it. That was the sole focus of my life, really. I mean, I had work, I had kids, and I did have some friends that we did I did things with, but everything, everything cycled, circled around that one fact that of course, was secret from the rest of the world, so it seemed. And, uh, you know, so I worked the program. I came to meetings. I read. I worked the steps. And uh, I shared in meetings. I listened in meetings. And one of the first positive effects that I had, other than feeling better, was that the rage that had been part of my life for so long went away. That I was no longer exploding over tiny little incidents. And that to me was really the, 
one of the first gifts that I recognized that the program gave me. Now, I said that, that I used to start my story on that day in April 2002, but one of the things that I realized as I have been in the program and as I have done a couple of inventories, four-step inventories, is that the character traits that, that I have that brought me into relationship with an alcoholic made me convinced that I was going to be the savior, the fixer. Uh, those character traits have been with me for much longer than, uh, than the alcoholic relationship. And so really my story starts in early childhood when I started learning how to be a codependent, when I started learning that it was my job to fix everybody, that my happiness depended on your happiness. And, you know, is it any surprise that almost all of the serious relationships that I had in my life were people that needed fixing in some way or another? So, although the acute part of the story started recently, um, I'd been working up to it for, for many years. So I found some serenity, and I found serenity while my loved one was still drinking, that, uh, you know, her, the chaos of, of the drinking was still around me, but I didn't have to buy into it. I didn't have to, as we say, didn't have to pick up the rope that uh, when, when the, when the uh, alcoholic wanted a tug of war, I didn't have to participate if I didn't want to, want to, hmm. um, if, I, if I had the presence of mind not to, let's put it that way. Um, one of the things that I struggled with when I came into the program, I struggled with a question of um, whether to stay in relationship with my loved one. We'd been together for over 20 years at that point. Um, and, you know, we had a house together. We had children together. We had a significant amount of our lives together. But the drinking was driving me crazy. And I really didn't think I could continue to live with that, with the craziness that, that was going on in my life, the unmanageability. But I also didn't want to leave. I couldn't visualize either future as being a good one for me. I couldn't visualize living in either of those futures. Now, of course, the default, if I didn't do anything, was to continue to live in the crazy, which, of course, would probably get worse. And I came into the program, and what I heard was, if I didn't know the answer to a dilemma that I was struggling with, if I was not in immediate danger, I really didn't have to make a decision right away. I didn't have to make a choice. I could wait until I knew what the right choice was. And so I did. And it was about two years of, of sitting in the question as I found recovery, as I found serenity, as I found happiness, and as I found clarity and an understanding of what, you know, what I really wanted, that it happened one day that I looked at her and I said, you know, there's the, there's the person that I love who has this horrible disease. And that disease makes her act, act in ways that, that I really can't stand. But she's still in there. And I believe that was a gift from my, from my higher power, a gift from God, to have that, that moment of clarity. Uh, and to be able to understand that whatever happened, I could stay. And that I wanted to stay. And that was the, the second huge 
gift that that I got from the program was that clarity of decision. And, you know, I'm glad I did because, and I couldn't have done it without, without Al-Anon because without Al-Anon I would not have had the tools um, to continue to have the, the craziness in my life, even if it wasn't pulling me in as much anymore, um, to be able to wait, to be able to watch and, and to let her find her own path, which did happen. Um, and I know that I had nothing to do with, with that, except possibly in getting out of the way. Because as um, a friend of mine likes to say, and, and I totally understand and believe, you know, I can't control it, I can't cure it, but I could sure as heck make the situation worse. And that is so true. And Alanon gave me the ability to not make the situation worse, or at least not too much. So sometimes people ask me, well, Spencer, why? You know, since your your loved one is sober, why are you still in Al-Anon? Why do you still need the program? And part of that is because of the the forty some years of my life, learning to be a codependent and practicing being codependent and practicing controlling, practicing fixing, practicing. I'm not happy if you're not happy. That that came before I came into the program. It's that, that that's not going to get fixed in a couple of years. You know. Um, it's, uh, for me, it's, it's a continuing program of, uh, spiritual exercise, if you will. If I go to the gym and work out, I will get fitter. Uh, my muscles will get stronger. My belly will get smaller. I will breathe more easily. I won't get out of breath going up a couple flights of stairs. Um, my blood pressure may go down, I hope. And, and I'll be generally healthier. And if I stop going to the gym, guess what? I don't keep those benefits. That is not the uh, the resting state of my body, to put it in a terms of, of my science education. You know, the resting state of my body is flabby and a little overweight, more than a little overweight maybe. Um, you know, and I get out of breath going upstairs and, uh, and you know, that's not what I want. And, and the program works in the same way. And I have to keep exercising. I have to keep working out. I have to keep reminding myself of, of the way, the principles of the program. And I'm following that 12th step. This is the other part of it is that the program was there for me when I needed it. And the program was there for me when I needed it because of people who had some significant recovery and were still, still active in the program. And, you know, I can't pay them back. But I can pay it forward. Um, I can I can give what I've learned. I can give my experience, strength, and hope to somebody who's new in the program, and and maybe give them a little hope, give them uh, an idea, give you an idea of a path forward um, out of what seemed to me and may seem to you a hopeless situation. And you know, as we say in our opening, you know, no situation is truly hopeless. I use the program in all aspects of my life today, and I think you know you've heard that you've heard that many times uh, in in this podcast. Uh, that's the whole sort of the whole point of the our lives and recovery segment of the podcast is to illustrate how we use the program in in all aspects of our life. And I'll talk a little bit more about that after the break. So I want to uh, close this section with uh, a reminder that this program is not an I program. 
This program is a we program. You know, the first word of the first step, the implied first word of all the steps is we, not I, not me, we. And a song that reminds me of what I found here is You Ain't Alone by Alabama Shakes. Here's a few lyrics. We really ain't that different, you and me, because I'm scared the storm going to take me away. But I really don't know what I got to say. Hold on, hold on. Cry if you're going to cry. Come cry with me. You ain't alone. next section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery, about what's happening in our meetings and in our lives this week. And since I'm the only one sitting in the studio this week, uh, I guess you get to hear about me. So it's actually been a couple of weeks. Uh, I was going to put this show together over the United States Thanksgiving holiday weekend while I was visiting my parents. And um, I probably should have realized that mm, was unlikely to happen. Um, I had hoped to get uh, my daughter to record Julia's story, um, but she ended up not feeling well the day that I was going to do that, and so um, didn't get that opportunity. And then I came home, got home late Sunday night, thought, well, I'll put it together Monday, except Monday I started coming down with a cold that, that laid me out for several days. I actually uh, stayed home from work for, for a couple of days, and so here we are a couple of weeks later. Missed it. Missed a week. First week we've missed ever. Oh, well. Had to happen sometime. We're not perfect. So the Thanksgiving holiday was a big part of what happened in my life the last couple of weeks. We, My wife and I drove uh, 400 and some odd miles to my parents' house where my daughter and my son also came. Uh, my daughter's in school near them. My son is in school about the same distance the other side. And so he took a bus up. Uh, my daughter picked him up when his bus got in in the middle of the night. Thank you for, for having adult children who can do that sort of thing. And 
My parents brought them down to their house. We showed up late in the evening after driving through sometimes blinding snow. But, uh, you know, it wasn't horrible. It just had to, had to be gotten through. It was something I couldn't change. Um, and I was asking God for serenity all the way along. And I got it. And that helps a lot when you're driving in snow because you don't want to panic. You don't want to make sudden moves. And uh, we got through. And my sister came down for the Thanksgiving dinner with uh, her fiancé. So we had a nice a nice family time together, along with some of the, you know, tensions and stresses that come with being with family. And for me, the main stress right now is my mother's health. And I think I've talked about that here before. But, you know, she is going downhill, both physically and mentally. And both of those are, are hard for me to see, to know that her time with us is is limited and that she's not able to be as fully present as she used to be. And I had prepared myself for that because I, I knew that was going to be the case and, and it still caught me sometimes. Luckily on Friday, the day after Thanksgiving holiday, I knew there was a meeting. It's a meeting that I often attend when I'm visiting my parents. And it, and I went to that meeting at noon on Friday, and the topic that we talked about centered around anger. It was a reading out of Courage to Change. I think it was the reading for that day, whatever that day was, Friday the 29th of November, something like that. that uh, and, and one of the other people in the meeting shared that her understanding was that anger was almost always a secondary emotion, that there's some other emotion underlying it, often fear. And I realized, and you know, I've heard this before, I've said this before, but it often takes somebody else's voice. And, you know, I'm convinced my higher power is speaking through somebody else's voice when this happens. It takes somebody else's voice to remind me that the reason that I get angry when my mother forgets things or when she's not able physically to do simple things or when she insists on doing simple things that are clearly very hard for her to do and, and, and possibly painful, this anger wells up in me and that anger is coming from fear. You know, it's fear that, that she is, she's dying, fear that she's in pain, fear that, you know, I'm not going to have the mother that I had for the last 50 some years. And if I can recognize where it's coming from, that can help to diffuse the anger. And at least even without that recognition, um, you know, I'm able to, to sort of keep the anger in check, to keep it inside, not really stuffing it, feeling it, but not expressing it. So I was glad of that meeting in the, uh, as we were driving and we had hours of driving, we had almost 11 hours of driving on Wednesday before Thanksgiving with the snow slowing us down and, and somewhat less on the way back when it was not snowing, the weather was nice and the roads were clear. Um, listened to um, some talks that were given at uh, a recovery retreat some years ago by Tom W. And I had heard another series of talks by the same guy um, a couple months ago, last month, I don't know. And so I knew that, that I enjoyed him. Um, and this, I think this set of talks was from a little earlier in his life, but it was really nice to, you know, have two people in recovery in the car and we could listen to these things and really, um, you know, get some, get some time, uh, together, just 
being in recovery, the, the both of us, and, uh, you know, laughing at his jokes and talking about what he said. And towards the end, this was a series of, I think, six talks, each about an hour long. So it, it, it covered a good portion of the, of the drive. And we, I interspersed some, some other, uh, other shows in between, uh, some, some humor and some, uh, some news shows so that it wasn't like solid recovery talk for, I mean, sort of like a retreat in all compressed into a day. Um, and towards the end, he told a story related the description that he got, uh, from a rabbi. And this, the, it's Tom W is a priest, Catholic priest, but he'd been, I think, taking a class with this rabbi and, and at some point, the, the question of what is a blessing came up. And, well, I'll let, I'll let Tom tell you what the rabbi said. And he said, as you travel down life's road, you know, as, as you're on the path, as you're on the journey, as you're on your pilgrimage, as you trudge the road of happy destiny, anything that gets behind you and pushes you forward, anything that gets in front of you and grabs onto you and drags you ahead. Anything that gets down deep inside of you and kicks and shoves and pushes until there's more room. Anything that does that is a blessing. He said, and lots of times blessings don't feel good. And lots of times you don't know their blessings until much later you look back at this situation that you knew would kill you and you found out that that opened doors for you that you never even knew were there. So it's real important, he said, to realize how blessings work. And then he told some stories about that. But when he said that, that was the first time that it occurred to me why alcoholism was the greatest blessing of my life. I think that's about uh, uh, what I have to say about the, the last week. Um, you know, I had a cold. I had to take care of myself. And part of taking care of myself was not being able to record this podcast. So there we are. Our topic next week will be step 12, which says, Having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to others and to practice these principles in all our affairs. So are you wondering maybe whether you've had or will have a spiritual awakening? And what the heck is a spiritual awakening anyway? Do you sometimes uh, question how you can practice these principles in all your affairs? And what are these principles? So we'll talk about those next week, and uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Uh, leave us a voicemail, send us an email with your experience or questions about Step 12. And how can you do that? Well, you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-707-8795. At least if you're uh, you know, in North America, uh, you can dial that number. I mean, you can dial it from anywhere, but it'll you know, probably cost you a little more. And so you can also use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation directly from your computer. If you prefer not to use your voice, you can send email to feedback at com, And we'd love to hear from you. Please join the conversation. We do have our website, therecoveryshow.com, and all the information you need to know about the show is there. 
There are notes for each episode, including links to the music that we played and other things that we talked about. There's a blog with um, occasional meditations. Uh, used to be daily, and we'll maybe we'll get back to that, but right now they're not. There's uh, uh, links to other recovery podcasts and websites that we like, and you can leave uh, comments there. You can contribute by leaving comments. Uh, you can look at our suggested topic list and uh, give us a vote for the topic you'd like to hear about or suggest topics that are not on the list. And we're also always looking for music suggestions. If you're inspired or ambitious, think about contributing a guest meditation. And actually, I have one from Beth uh, on Step 12 that I'll be putting up uh, after this podcast goes up, so sometime this week. And if you'd like uh, the meditations and the other podcast blog postings uh, mailed to you, you can click on the email button at the top right corner of the page to sign up. So just hop on over to therecoveryshow.com. The phone number is there. The email address is there. Everything you need to know is at therecoveryshow.com. So before we listen to uh, listener contributions from this week, I'd like to play another song. This is Breathe 2 AM by Anna Nalek. And to me, this song captures where I was before coming to Al-Anon. It might not have been 2 a.m., it might have been 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. when I was lying awake, wondering what was going on, not able to sleep, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, worrying about what was going to happen or what was not going to happen, and not able to breathe. 2 a.m. and she calls me because I'm still awake. Can you help me unravel my latest mistake? I don't love him. Winter just wasn't my season Yeah, we walk through the door So accusing their eyes Like they have any right at all To criticize hypocrites You're all here for the very same reason Cause you can't jump the track We're like cars on a cable And life's like an hourglass Glued to the table No one can find the rewind button, girl So cradle your head in your hands Since maybe October of last year Here in town you can tell he's been down for a while But my God, it's so beautiful When the boy smiles when I hold him Maybe I'll just sing about it Cause you can't jump the track We're like cars on a cable and a like an hourglass glued to the table No one can find the rewind button, boys So cradle your head in your hand And breathe Just breathe 
and a couple of emails. Paul uh, wrote in reference to a couple of older shows. He says, Hi, I really liked the Progress Not Perfection episode and learned a lot, especially about the black and white thinking problem that can lead to reckless complacency and the impossible to-do list problem. I need to put things in perspective because I have a disease of perception. The Step 2 episode... I thought that having two atheist agnostics out of three on the show for this episode on step two tilted the recovery message away for me. I felt a little put off by reducing traditional organized religion's approach to God as, I want a pony. Sorry about that, Paul. Yet, I felt happy when one of you said that all the big book, we agnostics would be a good thing to check out. That chapter ends with the conclusion that we believe in a higher power as the effective spiritual structure which the whole 12-step program can be built. For me, prayer is about presence, contemplation on sacred texts, adoration and worship and praise, and yes, some intercessory or petitionary prayer for others and oneself at times. Yet Jewish and Christian tradition does not separate prayer of petition from praise of God. Often enough, praise turns somehow to petition. In my faith tradition, the Apostle Paul exhorts us to offer prayers, petitions, intercessions, and thanksgiving for all, for kings and all in authority, so that we may be able to live quiet and peaceful lives in all reverence and decency. For this is good and acceptable before God our Savior, who wishes all to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That was a quote from First uh, Timothy. In my faith tradition, the fathers of the church frequently explained this as an exhortation to offer prayer in the morning and in the evening. In no way is God in man's image. He is neither man nor woman. God is pure spirit in which there is no place for the difference between the sexes. In my faith tradition, calling God Father, the language of faith indicates two main things, that God is the first origin of everything and transcendent authority, that he is at the same time goodness and loving care for all his children. God's parental tenderness can also be expressed by the image of motherhood, which emphasizes God's imminence, the intimacy between creator and creature. The language of faith thus draws on human experience of parents who are, in a way, the first representatives of God for men. But this experience also tells us that human parents are fallible and can disfigure the face of fatherhood and motherhood. We ought, therefore, to recall that God transcends the human distinction between the sexes. He is neither man nor woman. He is God. He also transcends human fatherhood and motherhood, though he is their origin and standard. No one is father as God is father. The steps are helping me not compartmentalize my belief in a higher power. I got into these rooms by compartmentalizing. Thank you for your show. Paul B. And uh, and thank you, Paul, for, for that. Uh, I guess I'll just say that, that, you know, we do the show with the people we have. We also got an email from Lori. said, Dear Spencer, I just want to thank you for all your hard work and dedication. I also want you to know that you've really made a difference in my life. I know that you began this project out of love commitment and as part of your own recovery program. I am very sad that your co-hosts have left the podcast, and I know that was very painful for you. Making that announcement and continuing on was courageous and I'm sure difficult. Well, I hope that the podcast will continue. I hope that it is not at the expense of your own self-care, and I don't want it to be a burden that you feel required to carry. If it is, I hope that you will use the tools of the program to determine the direction of the podcast in a way that is balanced, healthy, and sustainable for you. Thank you for the willingness you bring to the podcast. You are doing a great service to the recovery community. Thank you, Lori. And and thanks for that, Lori. And well, as you see this week, I put my my health um, ahead of doing the podcast this week. And so we miss a week. And I guess that's healthy. Modeling healthy recovery behavior. Okay. 
Thanks. We'll be continuing to record the podcast live. You can click on the Listen Live link at the top of the page. And while listening, you can interact with us and other listeners in the chat room. To get to the chat room, click on the little speech bubble at the bottom edge of the Listen Live player. We are planning to record our next show on Sunday, the 15th of December, probably about 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, which works out to be 20 GMT. That'd be December 15th, 2013, yeah. And it doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show. We do have expenses. They're running about $50 a month. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. First, we have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Paul, Suzanne, Tony, and Ruth did. Also, we've put together a list of recovery-related books. And if you can use the U.S. Amazon, you can uh, buy books through Amazon, and we receive a small commission on your purchases. And right now, there's actually still a an, an ad for uh, Amazon holiday sales on the front page of the website. I think that's probably going to go away shortly. If uh, if you're outside the U.S., apparently that doesn't work. You have to go to your own national store, and we don't have that uh, affiliate relationship with the the other national stores. But uh, you know, check out the links on the on the book page. Anyway, uh, there's a, a bunch of recovery books and, and related uh, books there. So I want to thank you for all of your support in whatever form you give it, including just listening to us because we are here for you. I'm going to close the show with the Paul Simon song, Still Crazy After All These Years. And what I know is that I was, as a, as a fellow member put it once, in a meeting. When I came into the program, I was diving headfirst into batshit crazy. And I'm not doing that anymore. But my thinking has been deeply affected by my codependency and by the disease of alcoholism. And if I don't continue to practice this program, I will be still crazy after all these years. I met my So glad to see me, I just smiled. And we talked about some old times, and we drank ourselves some beers. Still crazy after all. Thank you for listening, and please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem we're facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time. I'm not the kind of man who tends to socialize. I seem to lean on old familiar ways. And I ain't no fool for love songs that whisper in my ears. Still crazy.